Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now on Amazon for a special price of six quid. It's January. You've torn your life apart with drink and drugs over the holidays. Go on Amazon right now and buy Recovery. You can also get it as an audiobook on Audible. It may not be on sale there, but nonetheless, worth having. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Barry Smith is a professor of philosophy and director of the Institute of Philosophy, as well as the founder of the Centre for the Study of the Senses, which pioneers collaborative research between philosophers, psychologists and neuroscientists. He has published on self-knowledge, linguistic knowledge, consciousness, the emotions, taste and smell, and has appeared frequently on BBC Radio, including the writing and presenting of a four-part series for the World Service called The Mysteries of the Brain. He is also the wine columnist for Prospect magazine. Barry Smith, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. Pleasure to be here. This is a big subject to discuss, the relationships between the senses and consciousness. Mm. The senses, I suppose, it's these are the avenues to experience. These represent who we are. But... It seems from even a cursory examination of your work, there is much misunderstanding about the framework of the senses. Can you talk to us a little about that, notably the Aristotelian idea that there are but five? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right. The senses are our closest contact with the world. You know, that's how we, we know where we are. It's how we see things in front of us, hear things, are in touch with people quite literally, taste and smell. And we've for a long time thought we just have five senses, that whatever we're perceiving, it's got to be either seeing or hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And we get that from Aristotle, who told us we had these five senses. And it's strange, because if you talk to neuroscientists, as I do now, you ask how many senses have we got, they say anywhere between 22 and 33, you know, many senses. And it's kind of funny that we've given up Aristotle's view there were only five elements that made up the whole of the, the world. Uh, we, we've rejected that. Physics has done away with it. But, but the idea that we have five senses has prevailed. And that's what people think of when they think about themselves. They think, I've just got five. We go out now and we ask people in the street, they'll say, five senses, sure. Like on a safari, you sort of think, Elephants, giraffes, yeah. lions. Yeah. Like this, so sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch. So like beyond that, we. So what is what is the panoply of sense okay. that's neglected? Well, well, let's just just think of a few more sense of balance. If that goes off, you know all about it. I mean, the world starts spinning, so it's going to affect you know how your vision is behaving, and your sense of balance is clearly important and on all the time. If things are going well. Uh, if, if people at home want to do this, you know, try standing up and standing on one leg and they'll wobble a little, they're okay. Now try closing your eyes and standing on one leg and you'll find it's much harder. And now you'll know that your sense of balance is actually made up of three senses, sight, proprioception, which is the sense we have of our own body from the inside 
If you close your eyes now, you know where your feet are and your hands are without having to see them or touch them. You just feel where they are. But it's not by, it's not by touch. So that's your proprioception. That's knowing where your body is in space. So that sense plus sight plus these beautiful little ear canals you have. So you've got ear canals pointing up and down, backwards and forwards and side to side. And that tells you whether in a lift you're going up or whether you're rushing forward. And that combines with sight and with a sense of your body to give you your sense of balance. Am I lying down? Am I standing upright? Am I tipping over? Incredibly complex mechanisms which boundary our sense of self. Sensory deprivation then, I suppose, is an interesting area because it, it limits how we in, what it limits experience you know if it's sensory deprivation tank or people that are blind from birth or don't have hearing what, yeah what i mean that, that well that that makes a big big difference so so the funny thing about the senses is they're a little bit narcissistic they tell you about the world but they also tell you about you so they're giving you a sense of how you are and what's going on with you so even as we speak now, we are making sounds that have an echo from the wall or from the table, the floor, and that's telling us kind of how much noise we're producing. But if you've ever been, as I'm sure you have, as, as, a, uh, uh, as an artist who works in sound, if you've ever been in an anechoic chamber where there's absolutely no echo, it's frightening. You make a sound, nothing comes back, and you actually feel you're almost dead. There is a feeling that you've you've kind of landed in some weird, strange world, and the and the thing is that your brain is paying attention to the to the sounds you make in the world. So as you walk along the pavement, obviously your feet are making a noise, but you don't realize because you're not paying attention to it that the brain is recording that sound. So colleagues of mine, uh, Anna Tadura and Ophelia Derois. Uh, created these beautiful things, sonic shoes. So you're wearing a you're wearing a kind of flip flop, and there are little sensors in it, and it's sending information up to headphones. And as you walk, they can make your footsteps sound heavier, louder, or make them sound lighter. And the interesting thing is that people's bodies behave completely differently when you make the sound from their own feet sound heavy. They slouch, they lean forward, they look as though it's a real effort. And when you turn the frequency up high, so you just get this sort of light sound from the feet, people start leaping. They actually start moving more happily in space. And you think, that's incredible. You didn't realize that your brain and your body are trying to make everything fit together. You're getting signals from sound, from touch, from, from smell, from everything. And the brain is trying to put all that information together and to say, what's going on out there and how are things with me? Our experience of reality is obviously determined by the senses. What of these studies uh, that uh, demonstrate that if you're an in, in asked to answer social political questions, for example, should there be more or less immigration, that your response may vary if there's a presence of an unpleasant smell in the room. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, tell us well, about that well, sort of stuff. Yeah, well, that stuff's interesting because smell is the most neglected sense. 
And if you asked people, I'm sure if I asked you now, and you think, which sense of the five would you give up? You know, if you had to, you're forced to. People always say, oh, I'd give up sense of smell. They think, not so important, but they're wrong. They're actually fundamentally wrong. Sense of smell is very important. Is it the oldest one? Yeah, I think it I think it is. And and paramecia, bacteria in a in a jar have got receptors that respond to odors. So, you know, from the simplest animal up, smell is important. Now what, what why is smell important? Well, it's it's used to give you a sense of danger if there's smoke, predators if you're an animal. We use it uh, for attraction. So it turns out that you are most attracted to people whose smell suggests that their immune system is further away from yours. So we're, we actually are, are not attracted to people whose smell is going to indicate that they're too close to us genetically, that their immune system is too close to us. So, you know, you might find yourself talking to somebody and you think, oh, you know, they're very attractive, they're very lovely, very beautiful. But if they smell wrong, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to overcome that. And on the other hand, you might have people you suddenly feel very attracted to and you wonder why. And it could be love at first smell. So your sense of smell is is about attraction. It's also about recognizing your kin. If we give you a T-shirt uh, that your infant has had on, you will know it's yours. You will know that. And equally, you know, the infant will be able to tell that that's the, 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 the mother there in front of it from the sense of smell, more so at first than from sight. And smell is also one of those things that tells us that everything is okay. So you no longer smell your own home. Everybody else's home's got a smell, but yours doesn't. Why is that? That's 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 kind of funny, right? It's not a stand up around this, you know. Like while you're t- telling me this stuff, Barry, I'm giving you ideas. Like, well, and also reminding me of stuff like what, like I remember, as I'm sure everybody does, when you're a kid and you go around other people's houses, and you, I don't like the smell of their like dinner. Smell. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> smells of fish fingers in here. Smells of beef burgers. And you and you know and you remember your friends' houses and you remember your relatives' houses. You know how they smell, and you, and yet you think yours doesn't. Now that's funny. So what's happened is that you're so used to the smell of your own home, you've switched that off. But yes. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's gone entirely because if you go into your home and say, oh. Someone's been in here. Someone's been smoking. Or did I leave the rubbish out? You know. So you're on it like that. So we're touching upon, I suppose, the idea that the sensory realm is establishing norms, that we neglect information once we've adjudged it to be standardised. Yeah, I think think in particular that's right with smell, because you might think that smell's job is to detect change. If nothing's changed, leave it alone. Why, why, why put the brain power into maintaining a permanent olfactory landscape the way we do with a visual landscape? Why do that if, if nothing's changed? Beef burgers, changed? still beef burgers, beef burgers. Still, still pointless beef burgers. data. Yeah, pointless data. Uh, that's, that's ketchup. I don't need to bother, right? But also uh, remember that uh, when we talk about food, your sense of smell is actually the most important sense for getting flavor from food. So without smell, the experience of gastronomy or cuisine is nothing. Is really? nothing. In fact, uh, all you get, all you can get, if you had your uh, a nose clip on, we could put you know, or pinch your nose tightly shut and try eating things. All you'll get is what the tongue provides: salt, sweet, sour, bitter, savory. That's it. And yet, you can taste cherry, pineapple, mango, strawberry. You don't have strawberry receptors on your tongue. That's all coming from smell. 
So if we took your sense of smell away, that's all lost. And, and, and you often get patients going to the doctor, certainly in older age, and they say, I've lost my sense of taste. Now, a good doctor will say, put your tongue out. Here's a bit of lemon juice or here's a bit of salt. Do you taste that? Oh, yeah, I taste that. But that's all I can taste. And now they realize how much of what they thought was taste is actually due to smell. It also seems, Barry, that the sensory realm is highly collaborative. And this is analogous to what we're learning about neurology and psychology, I suppose, that it's not like this is the bit of the brain that deals with fear. This is the bit of the brain. The senses are collaborating to create a perception of reality in ways that are subtler than we may have imagined. They really are. So, so, so that's the second big thing. You know, one thing is giving up five, many more than five. And the second thing is saying the senses are massively interacting. You almost never have an experience that's just in one sense modality. In fact, the arts is the place where we think that happens. You go to a gallery and you think, oh, I'm just using my eyes. But in fact, you're aware of the acoustics in the gallery. That's why if you're in a very big room with a high ceiling, it's very different from being in a kind of small, tight space looking at the same painting. You're also aware of the smell of the gallery. Um, coming back to smell, one of my favourite galleries where I grew up, Glasgow uh, Art Gallery and Museum, Kelvin Grove, <laughs> And when it went in for a £40 million refit and it closed for many years, the Glaswegians all said, don't change the smell, don't change the smell. Because they had been there as kids, they had gone back as adults, they had taken their own kids and it was that familiar smell of old stone and furniture polish, which they wanted because it was part of their childhood, it was part of their memory. And so the senses, the senses do make up the world. They don't work separately. But let me show you some of the interactions. I mean, there are weird ones. So there are odors in shampoo that make your hair feel softer. Who knew? So th th that sort of green apple you sometimes get yeah. in, in shampoos, it will sensitize touch at the end of your fingers to make everything seem really soft and, and squeaky and lovely. There are interactions between uh, how things look and how they taste. So if I give you two uh, bottles of juice and and they've got they're just it's just water with some sugar, a little bit of sugar in it. One of them is lime green color dyed, and the other is red color dyed. You're convinced that the red is sweet and that the lime colored is sour. So your eyes are overruling what your tongue is telling you. So there's this way in which the senses are talking to each other and affecting each other. Another nice example, my friend and collaborator, Charles Spence in Oxford, he gives people two bowls of yogurt and you get these, these bowls of yogurt and it's the same yogurt in both bowls, but in one of them, there's a little weight at the bottom of it. So it's heavier. Now I hand you the first bowl, try that yogurt. I hand you the second bowl, try that yogurt. Which one's creamier, richer, thicker? And everybody says it's the one that had the little weight in it. So touch, the weight in your hand is giving your brain information that it uses to say, usually something that's creamier and thicker is a bit heavier. So if I'm getting something heavier, it must be creamier, thicker. So that's the way in which the, all the senses are working to give you 
an estimate of what's going on around you. Much of our conversation thus far has been about how the senses can be deceived or the senses, I suppose, operate on detecting patterns, consistency or uh, difference, as you said, and constants begin to be uh, uh, negated or ignored. So uh, what is initially quite interesting to me is that the senses are our navigational tools for what is reality. And if our senses are to a point unreliable or only reliable to a point, then what is our relationship with reality? How is it affected? So I think it's interesting that that we, we... often don't know how our experience is. We often don't realize that our, our experience is multisensory. You know, people think, I'm seeing, now I'm hearing, now I'm touching. But in fact, as, as we sit here now, you're looking at my face, you're hearing my voice, you've maybe got the residual taste of tea or coffee in your mouth, there's the smell of this room, it's got its own particular odor, you must know very well. And, and, all of that information is not coming in separate parcels. Now I see, now I hear, now I touch. It's all unified in a single conscious experience. It's a unified uh, view of you and the world around you. Now, when people have brain damage or, or brain injury and you take out some of those multisensory inputs, if you remove them, things can go wrong. And then what gets unified is something that seems very strange to them, very odd. Uh, a lot of people just after having had a stroke uh, where, you know, they're, 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 say their left arm is paralyzed, they're not getting the right feedback to know that the arm is paralyzed. And some of them, people who have, as, as it's called, anosognosia, think that they've still got movement with both of their hands. And you say to somebody, you know, can you lift your right hand? And they, yes, and they do. Can you lift your left hand? They say, yes, but the arm's not moving, but they don't know it's not moving. And so from the outside, we think that's really strange. But what, what the brain is doing is saying, well, I'm whatever signals I've got, I'm going to try and make sense of them in the best way I can. And I think, I think you see the brain's job as putting information together and trying to make sense of it you see it yourself when you're dreaming. So you've noticed in a dream, really weird things happen. You're inside, you're outside, you're in a car, you're in water. This is a man, now it's a woman. Uh, I'm suddenly in a different location. And the interesting thing is that during the dream, that doesn't seem odd at all. You just go with it. It's when you wake, you think, that was very weird. That was a bit strange. So when you're in the dream, you go with all those strange distortions. And a colleague of mine said he thinks dreaming is the best way for the rest of us to know what it's like to be brain damaged, where you're getting false input or wrong signals from your senses, but the brain is still trying to make sense of them. That's why in the dream you'll put up with all sorts of weird things going on, and in the dream it won't seem strange. So... The senses are the tools by which we determine reality. There are various ways of disrupting our sensual, sensory experience. Recently, for example, Professor, I had a go on a virtual reality uh, helmet. It was a mate of mine. I was only on it for about five minutes. I come out of that thing. (laughs) It made me think, 
this is all bullshit. <laughs> it really sort of affected my sense of connection to reality. Mm -hmm. It made me query how valid it was. Um, to alloy that to your example of the dream state on awakening, I often feel this is a confection. And some of these uh, experimental examples that you provide of, oh, this is a nice creamy yogurt or, mm. you know, there's uh, tales apocryphal or otherwise that I've heard of, you know, if you smell rubbish, you're suddenly likely to be more conservative mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. more pro legal intervention. So, uh, I suppose what I'm fascinated by and, and what surely must drive much of your exploration is that uh, to what degree is there an objective reality if it's so easily alterable and modified? I think there is an objective reality. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly up for that. It, you know, any, <laughs> anyone, objective I'm completely reality. up for that. I mean, right. I think, I think, the, I, I think, yeah, I think the idea that, uh, you know, it's all subjective and it's all going on in my head we the world has a habit of impressing itself on us you know we we can't resist what it does and and when you said you had the virtual reality helmet on and it was very convincing two things about that one is when you got the virtual reality helmet on it's pretty important that you don't move that you sit still with the helmet and you can turn your head that's fine but when people try to move around a room they're getting a mismatch between the visual flow in the virtual reality scene and what their body is telling them about where they are in space. And well, even if there's not an object, just with air on yeah, your face yeah, and stuff. Yeah, people then get really quite ill. Um, so uh, in Disneyland in Paris, when people are in this uh, tilting uh, uh, spacecraft and they've got this you know, streaming of you know stars coming and they're in a Star Wars scene, they're going in and out of buildings and they're moving to the side and they're tipping upwards and backwards. It's all going terribly well until... When the film gets out of sequence with the movements, they call that code V because people just start vomiting. Oh. As soon as they're not getting the body feeling that the visuals are giving them. And that shows you why to be in touch with reality in the right way, your senses have got to work together and they've got to give you a locked together fix. And, and the other thing about visual reality is, you know, the sense that maybe that maybe we rely on for reality most is touch. I mean, if you see something and you're a little bit doubtful about it, you know, think of Macbeth looking at the dagger. Is this a dagger I see before me, but I cannot grasp it? He wants to touch it to see if it's real. He's not going to take it that just because he's, he's, he's looking, it's real. And if people say, oh, I was pretty sure there was a ghostly figure, what they want to do is they want to put their hand in it. So our sense of touch, even though we rely most on sight, sense of touch is one of those that I think gives us more confidence that we really are connected to an objective reality out there. I wonder if this is underwritten by the idea of rational materialism. Wow, that's a big thought. There you go, un mate. Un that. Unpack that for me. That's my little Cruyff turn. I know, that, was a, well, that, was a, that was a beautiful little dodge. Unpack that for me a little. Well, Barry, what I feel is that, it, it, as we're beginning to see, Whilst you say there is an objective reality, and I certainly can't provide any evidence <laughs> that there isn't, it would be difficult for me to do that. It seems that there are certain forms that are uh, that are verified more quickly. It's uh, difficult to query that uh, we live in a culture that is materialist. I don't mean just in sense of consumerism. I mean that this is uh, that rationalism. What can be measured? Yeah. What can be reasoned? Yeah. Post Enlightenment thinking yeah. is what governs the, our times, yeah. our politics, our economics. So. It seems to me that the, the us 
ideologically placing precedent on I can touch it, I can spend it, I can fuck it, yeah. seems to me quite animalistic. And it, it seems to me that giving that precedence is quite a political idea rather than, well, I can see this dagger in my mind and perhaps other people can see daggers in their mind and uh, okay, <laughs> are we all the same? All right, good, good thought. Give us let a me, cuddle. Right, good, good thought. Let me, let me get back to that. No, give us a cuddle's good. Look, because rationalism, as you're saying, the kind of rational economic drivers, especially among economists who used to think of us as, well, we're um rational decision makers you know we we've got economic preferences and we'll figure out what we want and you'll you'll be able to assess what people are more likely to buy in in terms of what they they believe and what they desire and you'll just you'll just do rational decision theory terrible idea because we are much more moved by our bodies and you have a little bit of a fight back against rationalism when you realize we're embodied creatures and if we're paying attention not just to, you know, our senses uh, bringing information from the outside, but say your heart. So lovely work, new work by Sarah Garfinkel and Hugo Critchley in Sussex showing that there's enormously interesting connections between the heart and the brain. When every, every time the heart beats, it sends a signal to the brain and the brain has got a representation of all of its organs, the slow waves of the stomach, the liver, everything. And it's, and it's giving you an estimate of how things are with you. So here's the funny thing. Some people can use that signal from their heart to, to estimate how they're doing and in that way to know their emotions better. So people who are good at being in tune with how the heart's rhythm is and how it's beating, they feel their, emotion, their emotions more intensely and they're quicker and better able to detect emotions in others. And we often say, if people are good at this, we often say, well, they're, they've got good instincts or they're going on gut instinct. So we now are beginning to understand what that might mean. And I think that's been neglected. And I think when you imagine in the rational economic model that people are going to behave in the, um, you know, the most reasonable way to get what they want, given what they believe and desire, you're leaving out the sense of from time to time, how are they feeling? How anxious are they? How, how upset? How relaxed? How calm? And the people who really can pay attention to that heart signal, they're the ones who are going to be more in tune with them and maybe less taken in by all the attractions and the distractions mm. that materialistic world throws at them. Yes, because we live in a, a world that is overstimulating. And just with your um, sure. shampoo example, you touched upon how um, necessarily m marketing has to mislead, overstimulate, over-demonstrate the capacities of certain products. Consumerism, in a sense, is built upon the idea that uh, a product can deliver an experience that's beyond the rational. Yeah, it's all about experience. You, people in marketing no longer talk about products. They talk about experiences. Really? And they also have this new thing, which uh, is interesting. They talk about, we must get beyond liking. It's not about liking. It's about an emotional attachment to the product. So if you can get somebody sort of emotionally engaged, mm -hmm. they, you know, as people are with their equipment, you know, Apple Mac users and iPhone users, they're really emotionally invested in it. It's not, it's not just, yeah, that's good. That's useful. I like that. It works there's an emotional attachment to it. And you might even look sniffily at somebody sitting beside you in a cafe if they're on a PC and not a Mac. So so a lot of that is being cultured and cultivated. That's right. But I think there's we've got to be careful because while I think there's a lot of 
uh, materialism that's about misleading people. I also think it doesn't. It's not. It's not harmful if we think of better uses of of marketing, not to mislead, but to lead people to experiences that they want and they they need, and that they they could that could be better. Making people's food healthier, making people eat less fat, salt, and sugar, but not making it so horrible that they don't want to have it. You know, making something delicious, desirable, getting them to pay attention, slow down, be mindful of the food they're eating. If we can think of ways of doing that, you might give people experiences that were more satisfying and they'd be sated sooner and they weren't constantly stimulated and craving, you know, give me more, give me more. It's unlikely that that will happen because there is no imperative really other than profit. What? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's imperative, certainly, uh, when when you see governments are very worried about the amount of money they're spending on on, on obesity. They're very worried about, uh, you know, health risks to people. Now, government do really... That is the imperative for profit still in a different form. In a different form, it may be because they want them to be, you know, healthy and be able to still contribute to the... and stuff, to, yeah, isn't it? It's not like, yeah, we don't want those people being ill. No, we want they've them got to, to contribute enjoy to the life. capitalist culture. Well, enjoy life and, and, and work and, and, and spend. But look, I mean, all of us uh, want to try to slow down that cycle where we've made food so hyper palatable it's so delicious it's so full of salt fat and sugar that you know mm. people just want it want it want it and also it's not surprising to see obesity uh numbers grow especially in areas of poverty now that's just not fair because you know we're 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 advertising to people we're trying to get them to have these things which you know a lot of companies know are are bad for you but you know people whose lives are hard they're you know they're sort of left out of the the great race they're not feeling it's going too well they are being you know encouraged just to douse themselves with something that's immediately gratifying look at supermarket look at supermarket advertising i think it's really pernicious so you've got <laughs> you've got you've got it really is i mean look you've, you've got that thing um uh, taste the difference now what's that about that's about saying if you're a bit aspirational I'll offer you something a little more expensive and you will you will reward yourself by saying, oh, I was able to taste the difference. I noticed this was better quality, it's finer. So there they're trying to get people to buy something a little more. Yeah, which one is that? Which, which company is that? Is that Sainsbury's? Sainsbury's. Now, the other thing that Tesco's. I... Tesco's. Just bloody have it. Just Shut up. Well, well just... Here you go. Just bloody have it. Just bloody have it is what I'm worried about because at the bottom end of the range, the people that they know are not going to pay more for finer quality, are not going to they've got products that they say, be good to yourself. And I think little that's treat. terrible. Yeah, a little. How about a donut? Your life is your life is pretty hard. You're feeling, you know, oppressed and 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 hard pushed. You can't manage things. How about right now, just a little bit of comfort? Take that fat and salt and sugar. That, I think that's a terrible thing to do to people. You're working in a fascinating area because the perhaps I mean, thinking about it now, it seems like the most fascinating because these this is, these are the roads between reality as one feels it and reality as it is, and the unreliability of either of those preconditions. Yeah, like what is self, what is otherness, yeah. the subjective and the objective, yeah. and how these yeah. two worlds are communing. How, how do you use the? How does having access to this kind of insight change your life on a daily basis 
Well, I wish it changed it for the better. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I'm as vulnerable to, you know, to mood changes or to, to suddenly feeling hunger or to wanting some gratification. But, you know, when, I, when I'm thinking it through, I'm realizing that, you know, if, if, if things are going well inside of me, if I'm not having, you know, bad reactions um, and, I, and I feel that I'm kind of getting on okay with the people around me and the, and the things around me, I must be in tune. This, this is where the subjective and objective are gear shifted to fit each other that's nice but it often comes astray i mean people are sleeping badly people are eating more than they want people are drinking more than they want um why is that happening and it's happening because of you know the stresses and strains the 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 feeling of being left out and you see people you know the dispossessed the cheated of sunlight just being offered really bad goods really kind of simple immediate pleasures now can we encourage people out of that You've got to get them very young. It's got to be in schools. It's got to be a way in which you get people to be interested in not just a screen or or headphones, but but think of the other senses as well. Think of the way in which you could get kids to be interested in what they're eating and and picking it apart and being kind of you know thoughtful and 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 uh, good at describing it and being critical. In France, they do this. Little kids are asked about the age of eight. To, to ask their parents to, to to send them into school with some unusual thing to eat, might be an unusual fruit or an unusual cake or whatever. And the other kids are asked to try it and they're, they, they're to talk about it. And they say, oh, that's interesting. That's a bit like pineapple. And you watch these little kids getting fascinated because they're learning about the foods, but they're learning about themselves, their own reactions. That's getting them better in tune to what's good for me, not just what is everybody telling me I should want, I should have. In a sense, though, Professor, that places the onus on the individual. I notice this a lot, like, well, if you want supermarkets to behave better, you should be a demand as a consumer, a recycling aisle where things are a bit more expensive when we all know that this is going to be you know, It's social. It's a social. Yeah, it's a social problem. But, I mean, just think of we're, we're getting better now at thinking about social uh, factors that affect us. Um, so neuroscience used to be all about the individual brain, you know, it was a very individualist sort of discipline. You're thinking, you know, what's going on in this the brain of this person? How are they reacting to the inputs and the stimuli? How are they likely to behave? But now there's social neuroscience. People are really interested in how you're affected when having experiences by the presence of another person. I mean, we all know if we're sitting in front of a screen watching a film, it's not the same experience as if we were side by side with people around us, if we were kind of sharing that. And you, you're now setting up experiments where you're trying to see the extent to which people are aware of one another's reactions and judgments. And that's a, that's a way of tuning their own, being sort of emotionally regulated, not just by yourself, but by how it's going with other people. How much pain I feel and how I react to pain will be affected by whether there's someone present in the room with me and also whether they're a relative and whether this is someone I take care of or they take care of me. So I think there's, there's, there's a kind of sense in which we have been very individual, but we're getting better now at looking at how socially things are organised. Because these are further suggestions that there are modifications to our perception that yeah. are difficult yeah. to mechanically account for. Yeah, they are difficult to mechanically account for. But, but here's the other thing. Um, when you're making perceptual judgments, um, you know, is really boring. You're in a, you know, you're in a scanner and you're just watching uh, a set of images being flashed up and, and you're asked, 
is the one on the left brighter than the one on the right? Or, you know, tell us which one's brighter and you're just pressing buttons. If you get people to do that individually, uh, they'll come out with a score, how accurate they are. But we are now looking at new research where if people make their judgments and express their confidence rating, how confident were you that, that you got that right? 70%, oh, 80%. And then people having done this individually are allowed to discuss with each other what their judgments were and to share their confidence ratings. And then you ask them to come up with a collective decision. Turns out that the pairs are better than the strongest of the two pairs doing it individually. In other words, two brains are better than one. When you're making perceptual judgments, if you're allowed to discuss it, you'll arrive at a better judgment if if you do it together. Now, just think of that and the consequences that has in general, that a lot of the decision-making that we go in for, probably if we were allowed to discuss it with people, but it's got to be discussed in a way where, you know, nobody's dominating the discussion, nobody's taking it over. Two brains being better than one is a is a kind of new view because it, it, it affects not just... Uh, thoughts about society, but even our perceptions, even our perceptions might be improved if we're allowed to discuss them with people. Yes, of reality itself. Uh, I recall something that Yanis Varoufakis said when we spoke uh, that there is no self. We exist in dialectic. What is reality if you're in an aluminium capsule drifting through space, which I suppose is a way of physically recreating the idea of a world stripped of senses, a world stripped of yeah. apertures yeah. to otherness. Yeah. And now an advertisement break. Support for today's show comes from Harry's. This new year... Why not make Harry's part of your resolution? If you're a frequent shaver, Harry's can save you about $100 a year. And having won countless grooming awards, they'll keep you looking and feeling great. I personally like using Harry's to tidy up my beard, and I find the quality of the blades excellent, which is why over 3 million guys have switched to Harry's. They've just switched to it. A good shave comes down to good blades. Anyone knows that? Because Harry's owns the factory. It's their factory. They're able to deliver amazing quality blades for just $2 a blade compared to $4 or more that you'll pay at a drugstore. All products are backed by a 100% quality guarantee. Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades, right? They'll give you their trial shave set for how much? For $1? For 50 cents? For a single penny? No, absolutely free. When you sign up at harrys.com forward slash Russell, all in caps, two S's, two L's. So you'll get it for free. All you pay for is shipping. So claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. That's $13 value for free when you sign up. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel. God, this is so erotic. A travel blade cover. It's all in there. To get your free trial set, go to harrys.com forward slash Russell, all in caps, two S's, two L's, right now. That's right, immediately. That's harrys.com forward slash Russell, now it's back to under the skin. Do you meditate? No. Um, uh, I do other things that get me into that state. So so here's why I don't meditate. I'll tell you why I don't. Um, so I remember when I was a much younger academic and feeling all the pressures and very stressed and, you know, suffering all the things that high stress will give why, you. Why was you stressed? Yeah. 
Well, stress because you're under pressure. You've got to publish. You've got to lecture. What were you working on at this point? I, I was, I was doing very technical philosophy of language and logic, and so it was because you're of, a philosopher and you're aware of yeah, neuroscience. Yeah. So you're working in very interesting. Very interesting. Realms. Is, but, but I was glad when I started working on uh, the con- connections to the senses and started working psychology and neuroscience. It's great to collaborate. I love collaborative work. You're not alone. But, but before that, when I was a younger academic, philosophers often work, you know, in their own study on their own, having the hard thoughts, having to come up with something that that's, you know, original, that's good, that's clear. But under those sorts of pressures, I was getting, you know, very, very stressed. And doctors would say to me, I think you should meditate. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try that. That may be calm me down. And then what they do is they tell you, you know, you're, you're lying on the floor, your eyes are closed, you're very calm, and I want you to concentrate on the word relax. And of course, I'm a philosopher of language. I'm thinking the word relax, it's like relax, but it's not actually combined of re and lax. And I'm starting, my mind is just racing, thinking about the bloody word. So I thought, that's no good. That's not going to work for me. What I need to do is turn words off. I've got to make sure that, you know, I'm not having uh, wordy conversations, that restless internal monologue that's going on. So how do I do that? And for me, it's always been looking at paintings. And I would, you know, get myself along to the National Gallery or wherever was close. And I would spend a very long time in front of a painting until the voices in my head commenting on it, noting things calm down. And there's a moment when you stop sort of competing with what you're looking at. You stop giving your own imposition and you just let what's there come to you. And then you begin to really see what the artist saw. You begin to just let the painting speak. And at that point, the words go, and it's a lovely meditative calm state. And I and I remain sort of motionless, very peaceful in that state. And it's very interesting that I must give off something because people who are inclined to sort of walk in front of you in the painting, they sort of notice me and they they go around the back as if not wanting to interrupt. And I think that's the nearest I can get to a kind of meditative state. It feels very good and the body feels very grateful, I think, in some way for being in that state because everything has calmed down. The level of adrenaline has dropped. You're not on alert. You're not sort of ready to react. For you then, it's difficult to surrender the process of analysis and mm. adjudication. But as you described the process of looking at a painting, you, it seemed to me that you were saying that eventually you kind of melt into mm. an experience of the mm. creator, a mm. loss of self, which mm. my own experience of meditation is somewhat about achieving sensory experience perhaps could be regarded as this uh, enforcing one's position i am here i can smell that i can see that i can hear that if that vibration's bouncing back at me it means i'm in this kind of environment and those early examples you gave of how we react to like the the device that makes our footsteps louder you know it means that we're continually reevaluating the parameters of self what we are who we are I'm very interested in challenging the relationship between between self and reality because who, I'm curious about who authors what reality is and what our role is. We talked already of the way that different supermarket brands would market at their potential customers who is 
designated in a kind of casual necropolitics to eat the salty, fatty foods and who can eat the lush, tasteful goods. I'm assuming if you don't meditate, and I've not for years, but I've taken psychedelics, I wonder if you're curious about, with your knowledge of neuroscience, about the how the mind altering substances yeah. and what they if yeah. what can be uh, so, so so i think they are interesting and i think they um there's a lot of interest in them in the field of psychiatry and neuroscience at the moment now because you get that uh i mean look i i can i can remember when you know when you're hideously drunk and you're really really off your face and your eyes look one way and then when you move them you feel the image didn't quite come with you at the right time and things are sort of shuddering and you can see what you're doing is breaking down the way the senses normally cooperate with each other. Mm. And and at that point, you probably start to get a dissolving of the boundaries of the self, but not in a, not in a good way. No. Not in a good way. And I think I think that is interesting to see how the self is not, as some philosophers thought, this indissolvable, single, constantly present thing that was there. Which philosophers think that? Well, I mean, Rene Descartes thought, mm. I think, therefore, I am, and that self was a kind of enduring, continuing presence that was that was you. You could take all the bits of the body away and there would still be this self, which was the thinking thing. And it's, it's, it's absolutely not like that. I mean, the, the way in which our sense of self is composed of so many components and parts that all have to be working seamlessly together like an orchestra and then when they're unified you get that probably illusion that everything is is in a single unified space and and actually i think you look at people either with psychedelic drugs or under sort of extreme conditions of drink or you look at people with brain damage and you see the way in which some of those things are breaking down and that tells you that um, it's not so obvious that that sense of self is, you know, permanent and reliably always going to be there. It's fragile. It could be disintegrated. It could kind of fracture and fragment. And when you see people with brain damage, I think, uh, you know, people who disown a limb or people who, who neglect everything on the left-hand uh, side of their visual field or people who believe that they're dead, or people who who think that their relatives have been replaced with aliens or whatever, those cases are often used in a very annoying way, <laughs> like a kind of you know freak show circus where they say, "Oh, look, you know, here's a here's a man who mistook his wife for a hat," all of that stuff. And I think what we should say instead when we look at people with these funny conditions is, why aren't the rest of us not more like them? Why is it that we don't have these weird and funny experiences? And it's, you know, they're, they're, they're but for the grace of God go I. I mean, if, if anything did break down, if some of our systems failed to deliver what they usually do and what we don't notice they do, you would get a fragmentation of the self and we would end up in the way that a lot of patients describe or in the way that people who've, you know, been on lots of hallucinogens describe so, so, so we we can be more sympathetic and more understanding, I think, yes. of other people not like us when we realise how much it takes to sustain this illusion that everything is unified and self-like and present. Furthermore, only uh, non-anomalous experiences wouldn't warrant 
observation. No. So we could be behaving in a way that is collectively hysterical. Yeah without it ever uh, causing a glitch on the graph because it's because of because of our understanding of norms have you got any uh, interest in the sort of in the changing morality changing norms taste the role of taste as yeah. in like like this is good taste this yeah, is yeah, bad yeah. taste this yeah. is elegant yeah. this yeah. is inelegant yeah. i have i mean i think i think that like, when you talked about norms that's interesting cuz that which is most familiar, we think is uh, permanent and has to be like that. And it's, you know, only under conditions of brain damage or, or, or an extreme or unusual anomalous uh, experience, we suddenly realize, oh, my God, it doesn't always have to be like that. Things could change radically. So I, th I think the familiar is taken for granted. The familiar is taken as bedrock. It'll always be like this. This is, this is just what it is to be human. And then we realize, you know, slightly late into our shame. It's not like that. I think in terms of morals, there's something like the same issue here. There's a lot of interest in, in clinical neuroscience and people who've had brain damage leading to them behaving in some morally uh, abhorrent way. What, like paedophilia or something? Paedophilia. So there's a famous case, you probably heard about it, a case in Virginia where um, there's a man who, who suddenly starts... Uh, uh, you know, behaving inappropriately to his daughter and his wife reports him and he gets sort of banged away and he's going to be uh, given some remedial training. But he's got these paedophilic thoughts, but he's also complaining about headaches. Now, they take him in to the hospital. They eventually scan him and find that he's got a huge tumour in the uh, prefrontal cortex, orbital frontal cortex here. And they operate and they resect it and they take most of it out. And then the paedophilic tendencies have gone away. Now, the tumour hadn't completely gone away. It regrew and the paedophile tendencies come back. And again, he had to be incarcerated. Now, what's really interesting about him is that he knew it was bad to do this. He tried to hide what he was doing and he just, it's, he says, couldn't stop himself doing it. Now, a lot of people, lawyers, get very worried about those cases because they say, well, there'll always be a defense in court saying, you know, my neurons made me do it. It wasn't me, mm. Gov. But actually, actually, that's, that's, they don't realize that's worse. Because if somebody says, I couldn't help doing it, you're probably going to incarcerate them and keep them locked up for the safety of everybody around. It's not as though they're going to walk out of court free if they say, I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. They're going to be, you know, restrained. But what's interesting about his case is he knew it was wrong and then said, but I'd, I'd, I'd no way of controlling it. Whereas we often tend to think of people behaving in some morally abhorrent way. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. That's why they do it, because they don't know the difference. They don't realize it's wrong. Now, here's somebody who knows it's wrong and can't stop himself doing it. So we realize a bit more like addiction. There's something here which we need to separate out. It's not enough just to have good intentions, to know what's right or wrong. How are you going to have the means to be able to follow it up, carry it out, resist something, not do that? And we're learning that it's, a, again, it's an orchestration of lots of little systems. And if something goes wrong, you're not in control of it. You're, you know, it's out of your reach. It's an interesting ethical question because I suppose it's to do with determinism and personal authority that if... Yeah. if if, because I suppose perhaps in centuries to come, that will be seen merely as a 
obvious example, an outlier of the ways that all of our personal autonomy is being underwritten or fueled by sort of neurological events that could be seen as a yeah. personal meteorology, just the weather of our consciousness. I, I like that. I think it is the weather of our consciousness. I think we, I think we, we fluctuate and we're fickle. It's not surprising, therefore, that people uh, uh, are often compared to the weather, you know, uh, because... Blue or stormy or stormy, sunny but, disposition. Yeah, but also we're not very good, even though we've now got all these satellites and we're trying to predict, we're not very good at predicting the weather. Have you ever noticed when you get a weather forecast that the first thing somebody tells you is what happened today? Well, you know, there was a high, uh, uh, you know, it was very high pressure and the winds were coming in from the south. And then that led to the, you think, I know what happened. I was there. Mm. What they're trying to do is build up your confidence that once it's happened, they know why they can explain it. And they're hoping that that will let you believe that they can now predict but things still happen in the weather that were not predicted. And we, we suddenly had a rush of snow in the UK and boy, nobody was expecting that. They didn't, I didn't hear the, the weather warnings about it. So I think people are the same. Once somebody has, has, has acted, once they've done something, you can probably try and figure out why they did it and, and attribute motives. But what we can't do is really predict what people will do. I mean, we're, we're just really not good at that. That's why people are like the weather. We are, we're really not able to say in advance exactly what they'll do. They'll have tendencies. There'll be things that you, you kind of expect them to do. But I, I like the fact that people can always behave out of character and you can still make sense of it. It challenges, doesn't it, the systems of taxonomy that we put in place that are oh, this group of people are likely to commit crimes, this group of people are other, these people ought to be elevated yeah. and respected because there's too much complexity for these systems to be reliable yeah. and these categories are usually constructed with a particular narrative in mind. They are. And, and just that phrase, these people, I mean, how dangerous does that sound when you decide that you're going to, uh, you know, castigate a whole group of people as though you, you know exactly what they're like and how they're going to behave? Here's the, the terrifying thing. The more that we get information from neuroscience uh, in courts, we see uh, pictures of brains with, you know, areas that are lighting up. And of course, we know areas don't actually light up. This is just... That's a metaphor in itself. A, yeah, exactly. And it's also how we, we create the pictures that demonstrate where we think there's more activity. It has to travel activity. through language. It's got to travel through language. And, but but, but the, the power of image in a court is very strong. It, it, a lot of studies going on recently with lawyers and neuroscientists showing that courts are incredibly moved by somebody flashing up you know, an image inside a skull and here's a little patch of activity where it seems to be going orange and that's obviously why somebody behaved like that's this. His pervert that's center. his pervert center. It's center. lot up it's, in red, the active. dirty bugger. Exactly. <laughs> 20 years. And of course, what the public don't know is that that uh, image is not of a, a single brain. It's not of a single brain. Never is. When you're doing scanning, you get, say, 30 subjects you scan them all performing a task and you scan them all when they're performing some uh, contrast task. And what you're looking at is a computer representation of the average brain that shows the average activity difference between performing one task and another. So that's not an individual. That's a, that's a statistical generalization. So while you might say, look, for any 30 people, 26 of them are definitely in this condition, going to behave this way, 
there could be the one person who who won't and who doesn't. And I think when it comes to making decisions about people's individual liberty, you're probably not wanting to go by, well, statistically, people like this have, you know, re-offended or whatever. There's a, there's a study that was done in uh, New Mexico, I think, where they scanned the brains of uh, long-term inmates and then had follow-ups of when they were uh, released, if they were paroled, and whether they re-offended. And it turned out that getting people to perform go-no-go tasks, you know, where they're, they're, they're excited and ready to press a button, but they might go too early and they might, you know, make an error. People who had no impulse control or very little impulse control. They 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 very little activation in the anterior singular cingulate cortex in the brain. They reoffended more often, more reliably than people who had greater activation and more impulse control. Now, it turned out that when the study was done over I think a 10-year period, the the uh, neuroimaging scans gave something like 66% reliable judgment about whether someone was likely to reoffend whereas the parole board who were deciding it only had a success rate of 25%. Now, what do we do about that? You kind of think, look, um you'd want to get better than 25% if you're guessing, should we let this person out now or early or should we let them complete the sentence? You want to do better than I'm 25% right that they'll They'll, they'll yeah, dreadfully low. Uh, dreadfully low. So 66 is better. And at the same time, again, remember, the scanning data is averaging the result. So you might say, well, you know, in general, people with low activation here in the ACC, you know, on average, most of them will reoffend. But if you're the one who's not part of that data uh, uh, summary, are you going to stop that guy from being paroled just because you say, well, on average, people don't? So that, that raises, I think for society, that raises huge moral problems. This, this new knowledge is not neutral. We have to make some really tough decisions about how we use it. No, so little is because of often where funding comes from, there's a usually a bias in that area. The incentives and objectives of particular institutions, there's usually vested interests involved. A particular picture of reality is usually presented and preserved. One of the things I've learned over the, like my personal, I was personally incentivized to undertake uh, the process of conducting these interviews because I do... Uh, a degree in religion in global politics at SOAS. And over the course of these interviews, one of the things I've discovered and I'm sort of it's just crystallizing in my mind is the invisible caveat, um, unless it affects the interests of the powerful. We must do something about climate change, unless it affects the interests of the powerful. The, the, every single conversa ongoing conversation ha has this obscured, never discussed piece of information that we are driven to conserve. We are driven to keep institutions and vested interests protected. Very seldom that they are challenged. And one of the ways I've noted that that happens is placing a great deal of onus on individual choice. Well, these people have done that and that, you know, like that, rather than acknowledging the role of states or transnational organizations in influencing people's reality. So the 
work that you do where it, in, in its complexity, in understanding the mechanics of the relationship between, in inverted commas, an individual and, and inverted commas again, reality, seems quite vital because there are so many modifications that are altering what reality is. Or our perception of reality. They're not altering reality, but they're altering our view of reality. I mean, look, look climate change, as you said, that's a crucial one. The problem with climate uh, change is not the science. The science is in. The science is done. Mm. The problem is people. There are companies, as you say, who do not want government inter interrupting their business and telling them they have to reduce emissions and telling them they'll have to do something that, that, that threatens their profits. So that's our problem. How do we deal with the people? That's the issue. It's not one more paper, one more piece of uh, evidence is actually going to convince anyone. It's how do you deal with those sort of political agents of change? How do you, how do you, how do you monopolize that? How do you get people on site to do that? That's, I wonder how you alter well, perception I, I at that level. Too, but, but, but then, it doesn't seem to be with rational information no, because, right. as you said, the yeah. information is in. Yeah. It seems like it would need to be that where power is needs to alter. As long as power, the, the, the ability to influence, remains with people that are in profit rather than a large number yeah. of people. As long I mean, as power is not disseminated and dispersed. But I would be careful with, with the talk of power. I mean, I know people will often just sort of reach for the word, but I, you know, I remember Tony Benn always saying, uh, if people have power, where did they get it? Who gave it to them? Mm. How do and they how use it? it often. And, yeah, and how do they use it? Right. So, so, so now you begin to see, we've got to look at those stages. You've got to look at power wasn't just you know, suddenly it was there and it was exercised. There had to be people who were uh, agents of, you know, acquiring it and others who gave gave in and ceded and said, you can have this power and I'm, I'm mm. happy to grant it to you. So that's where those individual decisions and those, those judgments and those influences come in and they need to be looked at really carefully. What fascinates me now, Barry, is that how much work goes into concealing power. We now sort of live in a time where it's like, well, where is this power now if, if, if democracy at the level of the state seems to be retained within quite limited borders? It's difficult to access transnational corporations that, you know, that we purport to live by rationalism, but a rational decision on discovering that climate change is real and can only be affected if agriculture alters in this way, mm. if energy mm. uh, and power companies alter in this way. As soon as you know that, where is the resistance? And, and as soon as you could determine other oh, resistance is here, mm -hmm. until you have purchase mm -hmm. in that area, it's irrelevant. There's no point telling people, put your bottles in this bin and that bin. But it's well, always, it's always never that. good telling people what to what to do. They often don't. I mean, think of, the thing that I know more about is uh, food and health issues. Mm. People telling them, uh, telling others what to eat and what not to eat, what's good for you, what's bad for you, try to keep away from these particular types of food and so on. It never works. So what you've got to do is incentivize people in some other way. And with food, it's always deliciousness. Deliciousness will win out. It doesn't matter whether you tell people, you know, this is the healthy option, that's the unhealthy option. They'll eat what they prefer and what they find delicious. But remember, as you're trying to get messages across about how you can find delicious food, if it's vegan or vegetarian, I mean, a lot of people becoming vegan, and a lot of people resisting it because they think, well, the food won't be so delicious. So then we've got to make delicious vegan food if you're going to actually convert people to say, you know, you, you give up lots of uh, 
uh, herds of cattle, which are very expensive to breed, if we can make something so delicious that you don't mind doing mm. it. That's that's the thing, rather than the moral argument. Some people are very principled, some people are very moral, they'll do it, but we'll move them. But remember, as you try to get people to eat better, you try to get people to have better experiences, you're up against multinational companies who are fantastically good, who've got lots of research uh, arms there to find out how to grab people. If you look at Mark uh, uh, Shazker's no, uh, book, um, The Dorito Effect, it's fantastic when you see just how much work goes into making a Dorito so much more delicious and desirable than any other food from the, from the look of the bag, from the feel of the bag, from the moment you open it, from the odor that comes up, from the, the slight spiciness on your tongue and everything else multinational companies are doing a lot to get you to engage with that product. Mm. So it's going to be a very hard fight. And the way you're going to be able to sort of wean people off things that are easy, cheaper, uh, desirable and delicious to something that's healthy is not telling them it's healthy. You just got to make better stuff. You're going to make things that will actually move them at the gut level, at the at the smell and taste and the look and feel. Or perhaps even beyond the gut level, because for me, there's a, a cynicism in that, uh, if I may say, the, the suggestion that people will only act, at least in this example, on the basis of self-interest, of deliciousness, the experience of deliciousness. Is there not a moral equivalent to the delicious, a sense of beauty, of connection, of duty sure. and fraternity. Sure, but I wonder but, how we access this. Well, I think to access that, you've got to have time and patience and a certain amount of leisure. I mean, the people who pay a lot of attention to beauty have got rather comfortable lives and an ability to sort of take time out and stop and be mindful and thoughtful about what they're interacting with. And we 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 didn't pick up on a point that you raised, but we can come back to that just briefly. Um, matters of taste. So it mm-hmm. used to be that the way that you you influence society was the idea of you know saying it was very bad taste to you know to watch this television show or it was very bad taste to to eat this thing or it was very you know it's very naff to have pineapple steaks with you know um uh, uh gammon steaks with a pineapple ring on it and a cherry on the top you know very naff let's let's aspire to something else but but that was often those ideas of taste and what people wanted to identify with were often you know, dictated by people who had a a kind of elite position, who were frightening others into saying, "If you're not like us, you know, you're you're not really making it." But I do think what we eat, what we do with our leisure time, what we uh, what we drink, how we you know how we spend any uh, spare money, that's all about who we want to identify with. It is it is a kind of identity thing. Yes. And and some very nice identity and otherness. Identity and otherness excluded who's excluded from this group. Who's, who's not choosing what I do? Who's you're not, eating those who's pineapple not, gammon yeah, steaks, yeah, yeah, you you're savage. Not, you're not, yeah, you're not one of us. Prong cocktail, really. You know, so that that sense of wanting to identify is very powerful and it and it does come through food and clothing and music and all the rest of it. And politically there's a there's an angle here because once you've decided who you identify with, when decisions come along that you haven't thought through, it's much easier to say, well, what do, my, what do the group I identify with tend mm. to say? Oh, I'll go with that. And you're seeing more and more of that in social media now. The fact that having already decided who you belong to, if there's an issue and you haven't made up your mind, if your group, if your people decide one way, 
it's very easy to tag yourself on the back of that. But now we, we are starting to get islands of people separated from each other because you're talking to the people who are you're identifying with and not necessarily engaging with and listening to the others. Yes. And of course, we'll make better decisions, although it's uncomfortable, if we have more diversity of opinion. We've got more yes. people who are kind of challenging. It's almost like we don't have geo-tribes now. We have atomized yeah. sort of online opinion groups. To return to a point about beauty there for a moment, if you think of it from an artistic perspective, uh, specifically the... Keats quote beauty is truth truth is beauty that beauty's value is only in that it is an avatar of goodness mm -hmm. rightness mm -hmm. um so i don't mean beauty in terms of uh, although of course i do in, in terms of aesthetics perhaps oscar wilde is a good vehicle for this mm. if you think of sort of like wilde's initially superficial seeming sense of aesthetics it, uh, on, on, on examination it seems that wilde was particularly interested in truth purity innocence like sort of some charming mm. ideas mm. around catholicism mm. in his mm. writing about children mm. so like you know, again, when we talk about the senses, it seems that there are ways of dialing up, dialing down, weighing the bowl of yogurt, you know, optical illusions that even when you see them in a tabloid newspaper sort of dazzle you. When I was a kid, there were these things that seemed 3D when you stared mm -hmm. at them because like a dinosaur mm -hmm. was coming out. And like I'm always fascinated by that because there's something of, I guess, what Freud would call the uncanny. There have been moments I've had yeah. with psychedelics yeah. when I think... Yeah. Reality is not what I think it is. Mm -hmm. This is just but one bandwidth. Mm -hmm. um, and to talk for a moment of the, you know, the, 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 of course we live within a limited spectrum of color. We live within a limited range of sound vibration. Is it, uh, what, is it pointless to speculate that, that we, there are, uh, realms of senses for which we do not have the instruments that we are surrounded by waves and auras and lights and fields for things for which we don't even have the language because we don't have the instruments to receive them well we could think that but actually i'm 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 more intrigued by the idea that that we're already in receipt of so many sensory inputs that we don't pay attention to and we don't know about mm. but we're influenced by them the fact that we are not aware of them doesn't mean they're not shaping our experience conditioning what we are about but here's another thing that to go back to beauty which i think links with the political in a way that might interest you um we all operate a kind of everyday aesthetics we choose which mug to have and which bowl when we're having our breakfast we like things arranged a certain way we will uh make little efforts to make our surroundings feel more pleasing, mm. happier. And it's, I think, a terrible sign of the poverty of the spirit when people are really crushed when they no longer even do that. Yes. So there was a sociologist uh, in Glasgow in the 70s who went um, and lived in the Gorbals uh, and she had to kind of manufacture an accent so people didn't treat her as an outsider she wanted to do anthropology you know i'll be among the this people and i'm going to and I, yeah and i'm going to i'm going to see <laughs> okay, how the new, okay, i'm a it, member of your community exactly so she was able to sort of <laughs> so roughly fake it but like an anthropologist i'm going to go and, and live brilliant and, and she but she said and it always struck me she said the the people I was living amongst who were most deprived didn't even make any effort to make their immediate surroundings prettier or pleasant other people it would put a paint a coat on, on on the door they'd have put a plant pot outside the window there were ways in which they just wanted to make their environment a little nicer and then you saw people who couldn't even 
do that, they were so broken, they were so crushed, they were so beaten down that even that attempt just to make your immediate surroundings feel more pleasing had gone. So I think that urge to have a little bit of everyday aesthetics to make our surroundings nicer, to make some a choice, a choice about what 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 spoon we'll use, what what mug we'll use, what, you know, how we just want things to look on the table. That's very basic about being okay, about well-being and about humanity. And when that goes, we're really in trouble. There are a few things I'd like to pick up. There's a like a technique for people in addiction for measuring your wellness, a sort of a personal wellness index mm. where you can sort of ask yourself a series of questions and give yourself a one to ten evaluation mm. on how clean is your car at the mm. moment? Mm. How, what, how well is your diet? How often are you arguing with your spouse? They, these sort of tiny... When I think myself, there have been times in my life where I would like almost eat the cereal out of the box yeah. and yeah. Yeah. tip a yeah. can of tuna yeah. into some noodles because yeah. I've got I've got no demonstration of self love, right. no idea of the beauty of the self, yeah. no the idea of the beauty of, of the, the other. Yeah. yeah, those those values have totally yeah. broken down. And also, um, Grayson Perry in his brilliant documentaries about taste and class, where he sort of what he uh, like he's I suppose his thesis was that uh, like uh, the higher up the class, the less demonstrative class structure, the less demonstrative taste was. Mm -hmm. Like the, uh, in working class culture, big Larry vehicles with stuff on them, jewelry, tattoos, and then when you get into the upper the upper classes, sort of everything understated, no labels, and in the middle class, you know, it was a wonderful way of tracking class mm -hmm. and how class is exemplified and, and, and further on taste he sort of showed a, like there's a lovely clip of a woman at a working men's club sort of up the front with some kind of uh, crooner guy and she was all drunk and having a wonderful emotional experience and crying and he said like but why do we think of that as somehow sort of vulgar whereas mm. a woman mm. gently weeping in a box at Love Hem, we mm -hmm. would think of the height of sophistication who is deciding what is beautiful who yeah. is deciding what is good taste very often it's about distance isn't it uh, a lot of people uh, when they consider the the high arts or the fine arts, they 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 want to embrace it, but they want a kind of distance from it. So I think opera is like that. It's so staged, it's so uh, artificial that you know you can exercise those emotions, but only because it's clearly not reality and it's a little bit further away. Whereas the 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 crooner in the club. She's getting very near to mm. kind of affecting you. This is her real life. It's probably some of the, the the sadness in her life that you're immediately hearing. And that way in which some people like art to be a safe space to exercise their emotions, as long as it's a bit distant from them, it's not going to it's not going to be bad to have tragedy. It's not going to be bad to have something sad. It's not going to be bad to have something that's kind of powerful. That's also as a Scot, I think I can say that a characteristically English thing to want to do Is at it? a certain level of society, yeah. We're aloof. I mean, we're aloof. You don't want your feelings in there. I mean, the Scots are very funny because they imagine they're full of reason, but they're actually full of passion and, you know, they get they get oh, yeah. very wound up and worked up. So they feel the strain between those two. Yes. But, but I think, you know, the English often value the lack of overt expression of emotions and yet we'll still go to an opera and weep, you know, as long as it's in a safe space, as long as it's not. You're not going to have to get up and talk to your neighbor immediately beside you when you're feeling a little raw and emotional. So I think that's right. And I think also that expression of exercising your taste. Again, um, people 
with terminal illnesses who've got limited periods of time, they often say they now pay attention to their everyday experience and to the the pattern of it, and the texture of it in a new way. You know, they instead of just putting the milk bottle on the table, they'll put it into a jug. They'll want to sort of pour it on the on the cereal. Why make that effort, you might say? You know, you'll only have to wash up the jug because it makes that particular moment nicer, brighter. I'm looking after myself. I'm taking care of each of these moments because they're precious. And if, you know, we had endless amount of time to live, nothing would be precious because we could always do it later. We could always do it at some other moment. And I think it's being in the moment, being aware of how you make the immediate environment and the environment of others better. That's the thing that we want to concentrate on. That's the thing that makes you feel alive. Yes, to create somehow a kind of art through our life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be reverential towards beauty, our our own beauty and the beauty of others, mm. and that the senses can be instruments for measuring beauty, not tools not for tools, disruption, distraction. Not tools, but ways in which we we mediate the beauty in ourselves and others and actually are really literally in touch with it. Yeah, I think so. Literally in touch. This is where the external world is entering our lives through these fields, through these portals. This is where we access. Hmm, That's very beautiful. Just on possibly a lighter note, though it may not be, you're like a connoisseur of wine. You must be bloody good at that. Ah, God, I always terrified about this question because the one thing that people who are pretty good... uh, tasters and pretty knowledgeable about wine is they never want to say that they're experts because they're also very easily fooled. You know, oh, the first, the, it's from Tesco. Yeah, you that's mark. right. It's, it's, it's from Tesco's. It's two ninety nine. Oh, I thought it was delicious. But, I was but, saying it was tasting of a leaf and a barrel and a that's right, smoke that's screen. Right. People, people, I, I remember, here's a nice story about, about wine experts that I think is, is better. Uh, I talked to a German guy who was a, a, a the world sommelier, he won the championship world sommelier. So there he is looking after people in a restaurant with wines. And he said, what do you think you need to be a good sommelier? He said, you probably imagine someone who can taste any wine and tell you immediately where it came from and whose vineyard and what year. Or you think you're someone, it's someone who will tell you, oh, you know, sir, madam, if this is what you're eating, this is what you should drink. He said, what you need is humility. You need modesty and humility, he said, because your job is to try to find out what the customer likes and wants and to help them to find something that's right for them and good for them. And he said, and also, you know, every day of the week, I'll have to blind taste and I will get a wine wrong. You know, it will make me humble again. It'll make me know I still don't understand everything about this world of wine. And he talked about having a client uh, who came into the restaurant, guy knew nothing about wine. He orders a, a steak dish and he picks up the, the wine list and he goes through it and he finds a dessert wine, Chateau d'Iquem, perhaps one of the world's most expensive, most beautiful wines, but it's a it's a sweet dessert wine. And and he, he, he either knows the name or he's looking for an expensive wine. So he says, I'll have this. And the sommelier didn't say, oh, sir, no, you don't have a dessert wine with a steak. You want something from the Rhone or from Bordeaux and let me find it for you. Instead... He, came, he went to the chef and he came back and he said to the guy, since you're having the Chateau d'Iquem, the chef thought that you might want it with a foie gras sauce. So they had changed the food to make something more acceptable, more suitable to go with the wine he had ordered. And he said, and that guy now trusts me and he's learning more and he's becoming quite enthusiastic. And, you know, he'll ask my advice. 
And I think that's a lovely story. He didn't humiliate him. He didn't show off. He didn't sort of impose his knowledge. He found out what this guy wanted and what it was about and then showed him, gradually found ways to show how do you match food and wines. And that's that's what I always want to do. If I'm If I'm trying to get people interested in wine, I do not want to do that thing that so often we see where, you know, someone's standing at the front of the room and they're saying, well, this is a particularly tight-knit claret from the left bank. I think you'll show it's, it's uh, I think you'll find it's showing a little bit of maturation, you know, very fine times. And everybody in the room thinks, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't get that. And I'll never get that. And they feel left out. So instead, I think what I always want to do is give people a chance to discover something about themselves while they're having a wine. So the hardest thing people do is is getting a single glass and you say, how is it? And they say, oh, I don't know. I, I like it. I don't like it. But you say, can you say any more? No. But now if you give people two glasses of wine, two, two di- glasses of different wines, you say, try them both. Which do you prefer? I prefer the one on the right. Uh, is it different from the one on the left? Yeah. How different? Oh, well, it's slightly more juicy or fruity or it's, it's slightly more sour or the one is less sour and so on. Now they start comparing and now they're beginning to understand something about what's going on in the wine and also something about what's going on in them. Yes. And I love that because then when they learn about it, they'll go and pass it on to someone else. They'll get someone else to practice and to try this. And you say with a red wine, what do you think of it? Or describe it. And they'll say, well, it's fruity. And you can say, okay, red fruits are black fruits. And that's kind of an easy thing for people to think. Is it more blackberry, blackcurrant, or is it strawberry, raspberry? They can do that. And now you just give them choices and you get them to explore. Now they're exploring not just the wine, they're exploring their response and reaction to it. And you find out what they like and what they don't like. And now they can choose better. And they can, you know, they can now take an interest. They can go on exploring for themselves. And that's what I want to do. I want, I want to give people the means to do that. Quite early in that, I realised that I'm an alcoholic and I can't have any wine. I was thinking, I'd like to do that within 10 seconds. seconds, Black fruit, red fruit. That's actually Tipex. What are you doing? (laughs) Put that down again. That's fantastic. I I think that was a um, a, a beautiful analogy for the world of uh, knowledge in general, that we have to invite people to have a degree of authority in their Mm. experience of Mm. the Mm. sensual world and the philosophical world. And again, only the things that there are worth for are being described when you were talking about wine there um, my wife read this brilliant book when before our daughter was born and they in this book it was really excellent skill it said it gave uh, you the vocabulary for describing the types of sensation you would go through in mm, birth like wow. well is it burning is it stretching mm. is it, is it like and, and, it, and actually in sort of when it broke down the pain it took away words that were very generic and also catastrophic yeah. and provided you with a means to articulate what your experience is in that moment. And I think that my wife certainly said it removed much of the fear around that. Yeah, and she probably became a connoisseur of her own pain. She was Mm. interested in it. What was it like? Was it stinging? Was it burning? Was it stretching? Was it pulling and so on? And, And the more she's attending and thinking about the particular texture, the less you're just feeling the raw yuck of pain the more you're able to cope and pain management 
is often about that, getting people to actually pay attention to the, you know, the real weave and fabric and texture. Do you think thing. that neurologically that's because it's moving you to a different part of your consciousness and possibly remove or brain and, uh, and limiting the distress? It, it is, but it's better to do that than just sedate you and have you kind of comatose. I mean, yes. I, I really think pain management is difficult, but, but more attention rather than less and more discrimination rather than less, you'll be able to manage it. Yes. Oh, well, Professor Barry Smith, thank you so much. That was a really interesting and quite intense journey, I thought. Wide ranging. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your time. It's brilliant. That show was sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now on Amazon. Six quid. It's on a bargain price. What a way to get your head straight in January. Look at the world. Everyone's addicted to their phones. Everyone's addicted to everything. The world's falling apart. What's the solution? I am. Finally, if you like this show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes or the one that's on Android phones and do give it five stars, please. I mean, I can't justify it. Hopefully the quality of the product speaks for itself, but even if it doesn't, why don't you speak for it? Thanks, guys, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye-bye.